0: Inconvenient, adjective, causing trouble, difficulties, or discomfort. Truth, noun, the quality or state of being true. When something causes us trouble, gives us difficulty, or produces discomfort, we avoid it. But what happens when we can't? What happens when those things come from our relationship with God? What happens when those things that are so inconvenient are also unavoidably true? This summer, we take a look at truths that we'd rather avoid. Truths about human dignity, sexuality, relationships, our work, and our money. This summer, we explore inconvenient truths. Good morning. Uh, For those of you who are visiting this morning, my name is Jason. I'm on staff here at Holy Cross and also one of the elders I want to re- welcome back Rick, our senior pastor. He just got back from vacation with his family. You guys are looking uh, beautifully tan. That's great. Um, typically, when you preach for somebody else, you thank them. Hey, thanks for letting me, um, you know, preach for you today. Um, in this case, as you guys probably already have picked up, uh, we're on part two. Of a two-part message, An Inconvenient Bond. Last week we talked about marriage, and this week uh, we're talking about a really difficult topic, and that's divorce. So Rick, thank you for letting me preach today. Uh, I was anxious this morning, so I asked my kids to pray for me, and so my three-year-old prayed that I would grow wings and fly like an angel. Um, So I'm covered in prayer and feeling pretty good. As I said, we come this morning to a really difficult passage of Scripture. As followers of Jesus, however, we don't get to ignore those parts of Scripture that are uncomfortable. But as we do begin this morning, I want to say two things that we need to acknowledge. First, it's likely that every one of us has been affected by divorce. And by that, I don't mean speaking in generalities like I have friends or distant relatives. But the reality is, in a room this size with this many people... Uh, That experience has probably been much closer and deeply felt. There are probably those who have gone through divorce, those who are going through a divorce, there are those who are contemplating a divorce, and even those who are contemplating causing a divorce. Regardless, each of our, our experiences has been different, but it's safe to say we've all been hurt by them. And some of us are really deeply aware of that hurt, some of us have managed to work through it, and some of us have tucked it away, and it's deep inside of us. No matter your experience with the tragedy of divorce, know that the words of Jesus are words spoken by a God who loves you, who gave himself up for you, and who gives us these words for our good and our flourishing. As we look at our text today, you'll see Jesus doesn't pull any punches. He states God's plan really clearly. We'll also see that this isn't just cold-hearted Jesus, though, simply saying, I know marriage is tough. Just deal with it. It's, in fact, a deeply loving Jesus who says, as we saw in our passage from Jeremiah today, I have suffered as you have, and I'm with you in your suffering. With that in mind, uh, please stand with me as we read God's Word. We're going to be in Mark 10, and the first 12 verses. We're going to be working through the text this morning. So if you don't have a Bible... We have one in the, on the back table here. And if you do have a Bible, please make sure you have that in front of you. That will be helpful as we go through the passage this morning. This is the Word of God. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Please play with me. Father, um, you give us these words for our good. And, and yet, Father, we have deep, uh, deep experiences and deep feelings uh, that, uh, that hurt. And so, Father, as we hear these words, we pray that we would know uh, that you are a God of grace and truth, and that you give us these words in that spirit. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. May I have a seat. Uh, Some of us, most of us were fortunate enough to be alive in the 90s. Uh, Some of us had the, I'm not going to say good fortune, the experience of growing up in the 90s. Uh, So we we can thank the 90s for things like Gigapets, NSYNC, and the iconic TV series Friends. For those of you who could take your eyes off pop culture long enough and see what was going on in the rest of the world, though, two names you'll probably remember are Princess Diana and Prince Charles. And they, uh, their very public breakup in the early 90s was covered very closely by journalists in England. And journalists in England, were actually, in England would actually call clergymen in England because they were looking for fodder for their tabloids, and they'd ask the clergy, uh, could you give me a definition of, I, I'm not gonna do in a British accent, so I apologize. Could you give me a definition of marriage or marriage or divorce? And a careful clergyman would respond knowing that whatever he said would then be applied to Princess Diana and Prince Charles. So the journalists were kind of doing this gotcha thing with these clergy, and the Pharisees are doing this exact same thing in this passage. They're kind of playing a game of gotcha with Jesus. As we look at the text, we're going to look at this conversation that Jesus has, and then we'll address some of the ways in which we talk about divorce in our culture, and then we'll get into personal application. So first, let's look at the text and talk about some of the context in which Jesus is is having this conversation. So the Pharisees ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, if you're a Pharisee, this is kind of a disingenuous question because a Pharisee in this culture is an expert in the law. So to ask a legal question of somebody else is a little bit disingenuous because you really already know the answer. And Jesus calls them on this, and he responds with his own question. What did Moses command you? Now, the Pharisees are probably doing one of two things. First, they would be tickled to death if Jesus would contradict something in the law. And second, the Pharisees were asking not just a theological question, but a political question. Because here's the larger cultural context. Herod is the king of this particular region, and he has just married Herodias, who is his brother's wife. Herodias divorced her husband so she could marry Herod. John the Baptist worked in this region and preached in this region and criticized Herod because of this and ended up losing his head. He was imprisoned and then ultimately beheaded because of that. So when the Pharisees are asking Jesus this question, they're probably hoping that Jesus is going to say something so they can turn around then and say, so what you're really saying about Herod and his marriage to Herodias is this. Jesus is aware of that. As we see him sometimes do in Scripture, he decides to fully answer the question, only in private. Moving on, let's look at verses 3 and 4. Jesus asks, What did Moses command you? And the Pharisees respond, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Now, this is important to pay attention to the verbs here because Jesus asks, What did Moses command you? And the Pharisees respond, Moses allowed. There's a difference, and we all know this, there's a difference between commanding and Allowing, And the Pharisees are playing a little bit with that verb, allow and command, because we know that God never commands divorce. He allows it, but he never commands it. We'll talk about that a little bit later. The Pharisees are quoting, and Jesus is quoting, Deuteronomy 24. This is a book in the Old Testament. It's one of the first five books of the Bible, and it was written by a guy named Moses. Um, Moses, for those of you who don't know, was a, he was a spoiled royal, he was a murderer, but God later used him to redeem his people. And Deuteronomy is a book that contains a lot of rules about how God's people should live. Uh, let me talk a little bit about this certificate of divorce that, that Moses, or excuse me, that the Pharisees just mentioned. If we just read this verse, we might get the idea that a wife in this culture was just discardable and and really there were no protections for her, but a Jewish certificate of divorce allowed a Jewish woman to legally remarry, okay? In this culture, a single woman, and especially a woman with kids, was particularly vulnerable and helpless. And so with that certificate of divorce, it actually stated this woman is free to marry any man. And so a Jewish man knew that he could marry her legally, This is the first of several ways that we're going to see today that Jesus and the Bible actually elevate the status of women and protect women in a culture that generally held women in very low regard. Okay, moving through the text, verse 5. Because of your hardness of heart, the Pharisees have responded. Moses allowed this, and now Jesus responds. Because of your hardness of heart he wrote you this commandment. His response doesn't let the Pharisees or mankind in general off the hook. Again, Jesus makes clear that just because something was permitted doesn't mean that it was the will of God. In using this language, Jesus begins to point to the deeper realities behind divorce. See, when the Bible talks about hardness of heart, it's typically not talking about my relationship with somebody else. It's talking about my relationship with God. Hardness of heart talks about how I relate to God. So Jesus is pointing out that when divorce happens, it's not because there's something wrong with a spouse. It's not because you found something uh, that you didn't like. He's pointing out that ultimately it's because of your own hardness of heart. This is very difficult, especially for these people to hear. Our hearts are hardened towards God. And this is consistent with the rest of Scripture. Um, As a caveat there, uh, I do want to... Well, I'll get to this a little bit later, but I do want to say that when divorce happens, there is a party often that is the wrong party. And I'll get to that a little bit later. But what Jesus is making the point here is that all people, all people have hearts that are hard toward God. And the story story of Scripture is consistent with this because it says... There's something desperately wrong with us. And the Bible calls that sin. And we think about sin, we think about a particular behavior like stealing. But when the Bible talks about sin, it's not just talking about a behavior, but an actual condition of humanity. And it's a condition that affects all of our relationships and especially our relationship with God. So when we say sin, we're not fundamentally saying that we've broken a rule, but that we've broken a relationship and that we need someone to rescue us and restore that relationship for us. Let's move on to the rest of the passage. All right, verse 6. Jesus starts to do something interesting here. Now, if you're a Pharisee, you're going to be really frustrated by Jesus' response here because you've asked Jesus a legal question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, we actually have a bunch of attorneys in this congregation, And my guess would be, if you asked them a legal question, they're going to go to the law itself, or they're going to go to commentaries on the law, or they're going to go to case law. But Jesus doesn't do this. The Pharisees would like him to do this, but instead, Jesus goes back to Genesis. When Jesus says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses commanded this, he's in effect said, yeah, the law says this. But it's really because of your own issues that the law says this. So instead of interpreting the law further, Jesus starts quoting Genesis, which was also written by Moses. And this is clever. Think back to Jesus' original question. What did Moses command you? Jesus is about to reference another of Moses' writings to make his real answer to the Pharisees. Keep in mind Jesus' response is answering this question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus says, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore, God has joined together. Let not man separate. See, Jesus goes back to Genesis, and he starts talking about how things were meant to be. And this is also part of the story of Scripture. When God created everything, it was perfect. And so God points to his original, or excuse me, so Jesus points to God's original creation to communicate, hey, this is God's plan for us. And interestingly, he doesn't even, he doesn't account for the fall. He doesn't really account for sin. He's saying, this is still God's plan. Yes, the world is broken. Yes, our hearts are hard but this is still my Father's desire, that when male and female are married, they become one for life. Last three verses of this, of this passage. Jesus is now in private, we're in verses 10 through 12 now, and he's speaking with his disciples. And he says, whoever divorces his wife and commits another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. If you are Jesus' disciples, you're thinking right now, um, excuse me? What did Jesus just say? Because this would have been big news for a first-century Jew. First, look what Jesus does. He yet again elevates the status of women in that society, because to a Jew of this time, the idea that a divorced man could commit adultery against his wife wasn't a reality. Because here's how they thought, hey, I gave her a certificate of divorce, Center her away, everything's good, I can move on, I'm free to remarry. But Jesus is saying, no, if you remarry, you commit adultery. And he's raising the value of women and putting them on a more equal level with men by saying, husbands, you may think you're okay because you gave your wife that piece of paper, but you're really not. Jews, of course, know adultery is wrong. It's such a big deal that it's one of the Big Ten Commandments. God decided to actually write it in stone, uh, Jesus' second statement, the very last part of this passage about women. Uh, this would have been news also because in Jewish law, a, a woman couldn't divorce her husband. So there would have been no reason really for Jesus to include this statement. Scholars think he does it for one of two reasons. First, Jesus probably is making a political comment on Herodias' marriage to Herod. And second, Jesus is also saying these things to Jews who live in a Greco-Roman context, where it would have been permissible for a woman to divorce her husband. Okay, So in a sense, he's equipping them, hey, you're in this culture now that that allows this, just so you know this is not something that is okay with God. Let me make one observation here, and you've probably already picked up on this. Jesus is speaking to a culture that's, that in this particular area is really, really similar to our culture. Joe mentioned last week that the Bible only gives two reasons for divorce, adultery and abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. But we know, in our culture, we get divorced for a lot of reasons besides that. And that's that's the same for this uh, first century culture in which Jesus is teaching. In our culture, the idea that we can get divorced for virtually any reason has been enshrined in our legal system. We call it no-fault divorce. Um, by the way, it's, it's completely incompatible with the scriptures. As our culture would think it's bizarre that you would only get divorced because of adultery or abandonment, uh, these first century folks also thought that was pretty b- bizarre. In fact, even in the Jewish tradition, rabbis and scholars at the time allowed for divorce for reasons like if she does not accept your control a well-known Jewish historian, recorded that he sent his wife away because he didn't like her behavior, a spoiled meal, and if he found another fairer than her. And you thought we were permissive in our culture. Now, Jesus, in his statement here, has just made marriage a really restrictive relationship. And in this passage, he makes no allowance for divorce. And in Matthew which essentially resorts, records the same conversation. He only allows for it in cases of d- adultery. By limiting the reasons for divorce and by stating God's creational intent, Jesus is again, excuse me, elevating the status of women by making the marriage relationship much more protective of them because it's going to be much harder to end. Okay. So that's great. We've worked through the passage. We see some of where Jesus is coming from with this. Um, let's talk about how our culture talks about divorce. First, let me be upfront with you. I've already said this. The Bible is very clear that there are legitimate reasons for divorce. However, the Bible is also very clear that those reasons are very few. Matthew 19 lays out adultery as one reason, and 1 Corinthians 7 lays out abandonment by an unbelieving spouse as another reason. And that's it. Let me say one other thing that that should be mentioned. Where's my water? One other thing that should be mentioned, and this is a question that always gets asked, and that's abuse in marriage. There is abuse in marriage, and there is abuse in Christian marriages. Scripture doesn't clearly lay out abuse as grounds for divorce. And so this has been a difficult question for the church. But here's what the scripture does say. It says that you are a person created in the image of God and that as such, you have inherent value and dignity. Because of that, no one has the right to abuse you or someone whom God has created as precious in his sight. It has been... I want to say this really clearly, it has been the wide consensus of the church over the centuries and of our particular tradition that a spouse is not called to remain in a situation in which he or she fears for their own safety and their kids' safety. Notice I didn't say that abuse equals grounds for divorce. I did say... That you have every right to physically get out of that situation. Whether or not that separation can biblically end in divorce, however, is something that needs to be worked through in community and through prayer, through counsel with the elders of your church. God places Christians in community with other Christians for a reason, and He specifically calls the elders of a church to shepherd the members of the church. This, this sermon, I know, is going to raise a lot of questions, and so if you have questions, come talk to me or Rick or one of the other elders. Okay, let's talk about how our culture talks about divorce. There are a lot of reasons people contemplate divorce. I can't address them all. I'm going to try to hit a few that I think we hear most in our culture. Uh, you don't understand my marriage. There's no love or joy in my marriage. We both agree that it would be best to end the relationship. And isn't it cold and insensitive of the church And of God to demand that people stay in loveless and unhappy marriages? Perhaps. Um, But only if we start with the assumption that marriage is about our happiness and fulfillment, or that marriage is about that feeling of being in love and being excited to be with the other person. If you weren't here last week, I encourage you to listen. Uh, We'll have posted online Joe's sermon from last week just about marriage, and he lays out a very clear picture of what marriage is about. One of the main things Joe pointed out is that marriage is ultimately about the way in which it reflects God's relationship with his church. And as such, marriage is about sacrifice, it's about sanctification, and it's about giving of yourself for the good of another. In other words, marriage isn't about you. Don't get me wrong. Um, God doesn't expect us to look around the room if you're a single person and go, "Okay, who would I be most miserable with?" That's who I'm going to marry. Uh, read the story of Martin Luther, though he actually did something like that. Um, now, if you look back at Genesis, Adam, when he sees Eve, doesn't even speak in prose. He starts speaking in poetry. "This is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman." God creates Eve to be with Adam, so Adam doesn't have to be alone. That's great. So in a very real sense, God joined Adam and Eve together for their mutual pleasure and fulfillment. But we can't assume that if these things are absent, that the marriage is dead. Because God creates marriage to tell a different story. He creates marriage to tell a story about two complementary people covenanting together to show his love for his people. It's a story of how God loves his people, how God bears with them, how he works for our good and our flourishing, and how he gives himself for his people. Friends, marriage is a path of discipleship. And frankly, this is really, this is really hard. If you're in a marriage, or if you've observed a marriage that's devoid of love and joy, know that the God who calls you to stay in that marriage is the same God who himself bears with a faithless spouse. Look at our Old Testament reading from this morning. God stays with us even though we cause him great, great pain. Jeremiah 3, this is how God describes our behavior. Have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore? That's God talking about us, his people. The bigger story is that we have betrayed him, but that he continually pursues us. And even as we run as fast as we can from him, his pursuit of us will one day be realized in a wedding and a wedding supper. Let me talk about a second way we talk about marriage. This is a different person than the one I married. This person is different than who I thought they actually were. Uh, frankly, it's the nature of being human that we're going to change, and it's the nature of being human that we can't ever know everything about each other. So to say this person has changed is really just to say this person is alive. Stones remain essentially unchanged over 10, 20, 30, 40 years, um, but people don't. Let me share this with you from Stanley Hauervoss, a former professor of theology at Duke University. We never know whom we marry, we just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while, and he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing that it is, means that we are not the same person after we have entered it. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married primary problem then is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. One commentator I read said this, my wife has been married to five different people all of them me. Friends, the only person who doesn't change is God and none of you married God. Alright, one final point as far as how our culture talks about divorce. Our kids see us fighting all the time. Wouldn't it be better for us to part ways for their sake? Folks, this is a really hard one. Can I tell you that that divorce doesn't benefit kids? Please don't use the excuse that you're going to get divorced for the good of your kids. There's, There's no such thing. If you talk to any counselor, they'll tell you that when someone is divorced, it's the kids who suffer the most. Can I also tell you those scars... Run deep. I don't say that to shame anyone, but just as a as a reality. I also want to say that God is good. God does heal. I've personally got gotten to witness uh, that healing, but divorce does deeply affect kids. Let me say this though: there is beauty even in a less than ideal marriage. If setting a perfect Forget perfect. If setting a good example was the standard, then we, then we really should all just throw in the towel. Our kids don't need a perfect example from us because they have one in a God who came to earth to give himself for them. They have that perfect example in a God who chooses a terribly messed up people and then sticks with us no matter what. What our kids do need to see is parents... Who, despite their arguments, despite yelling, despite the strife, return repeatedly to repentance and faith. They need to see parents who confess to each other and to God and who seek forgiveness. They need to see two broken people continually returning to each other and to God, and in doing that, being reconciled to each other. And they need to see the lived reality that marriage is not about how we feel about each other, but about the covenant that we made with each other and before God. Okay, let me make some applications here. So what does this mean for us going forward? Uh, Let me first talk about this in a really big picture cultural sense. This might sound like it's coming out of left field. Marriage and divorce are social justice issues. It's popular today to view marriage as something of a bygone relic, something that's no longer necessary. I mean, this is the 21st century. Haven't we evolved past, like, committed, monogamous, covenanted relationships? Let me ask you this. Do you care about the flourishing Of people. We talk a lot about inequality today. Do you care about inequality? Do you care about something like economic mobility? Uh, Do you care about the 99% and the 1%? To talk in our culture's language. As Christians, we are called to work for the flourishing of the world. So here's why marriage is a social justice issue. And before I tell you this, let me tell you that this this information isn't coming from Focus on the Family or Fox News or someplace like that. This is research that's being done at major universities and being published in peer-reviewed journals. Uh, Bradford Wilcox at UVA, not exactly a bastion of Christian thought, is doing excellent research in this area. He observes that people, especially kids, are more likely on average to flourish in intact married families compared to the alternative. Let me give you some quantitative information. Using a data set that's tracked parents and their children from the late 1960s, researchers at Syracuse and the University of Wisconsin have found this. If you're born into a lower third of the income distribution and your parents stay married, you have a 50% chance of moving into the middle or upper third of the income distribution. If you're born to a single parent, you have a 42% chance of moving up. But if you're born to parents who get divorced, you only have a 26% chance of moving into the middle or upper third of the income distribution. Folks, we're not talking about greed. We're just talking about basic things like the ability of a person to provide for themselves and their family. If you care about that, then you should care about marriage. If you care about the flourishing of people and kids, then you should also care about healthy marriages and about structures in our society that encourage healthy marriages and not discourage and harm. Marriage is done in community. If you don't have a, if you don't have someone, a person, a couple, a community speaking into your marriage or your life, then you need to get one. I had a guy from this church. We've been going here about a year, and a guy from this, a guy from this church came up to me and he said, "Hey." Um, You know, I noticed that something is different in your marriage than when I first met you. And that was an awkward conversation, and it was a hard conversation. But I'm really glad that he felt the freedom to speak into my life that way. Because it meant my wife and I sat down, talked through some things, and moved forward on a different track I can tell you in in just this church, I can name four or five couples right off the top of my head who would be in a very different place in their marriage had it not been for people in this church who spoke lovingly but in truth into their marriage, okay? If you don't have somebody doing that, you need to find that person. Marriages do not fail overnight. We have blind spots. You have blind spots. Your spouse has blind spots. You need somebody in your life who is speaking into those blind spots and telling you about them. Marriage is a path of discipleship. We've already said this. We learn to sacrifice for the good of others. We learn to repent and seek forgiveness. We learn to do God's will, even when it's really, really hard. And we learn that marriage is not about our happiness, but it's about learning and showing how God loves us. Okay, in closing, this is the good part because this is the gospel. We've said some hard things today about marriage and about divorce. And frankly, that's because when it comes to these topics, the Bible says some really hard things. God's clear about his ideal, and he gives us very little leeway in straying from his ideal. If we just looked at Jesus' commands, what Jesus says in Mark 10, and if we just looked at 1 Corinthians 7 and Matthew 19, then we would go, we would say the same thing his disciples said when they said, then it's better not to marry. And we might conclude that God calls us to an impossibly high standard and then gets angry when we fail to meet that standard. But can I say that whether you've you've lied to your boss, or whether you've caused a divorce, God asks the same thing of us. He asks us to confess our sins and he asks us to turn to him to make us right. And when we do that, his response is the same. I'm faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And some of us might be feeling pretty good right now because we're thinking, this doesn't apply to me. But the Bible says we've all broken covenant with God. We've all broken covenant with God. And that doesn't matter if you're eight years old or you're 80 years old. It doesn't matter what your story is. We have all broken covenant with God. But the reality is that we stand before God as sinners who are in need of Jesus' blood and at the foot of the cross, it doesn't matter if your sin is cheating on taxes or cheating on your spouse. We stand guilty before God, and if, but if we have placed our trust in Christ, then his blood covers us. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, friends. When we approach this table in a few minutes, each of us is going to come with a very different story. But when we come, the only story that matters is the one where we rest totally on Jesus and his grace. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you that you give us your word. I pray, Father, that the balm of your gospel, the good news that Jesus' blood covers everything, would sink into our hearts today. I pray that it would free us to love. I pray that it would free us to love even when we don't feel like loving. Father, I pray that in our lives, um, our relationships with people would speak about a God who loves unconditionally. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.